And we stand today on the edge of a new frontier, the frontier of the 1960s, the frontier of unknown opportunities and perils, the frontier of unfilled hopes and unfilled threats. Banded together from remote galaxies are the most sinister villains of all time, the Legion of... It's the Legion of Dudes podcast. And now, here's the dudes. And welcome to the Legion of Dudes presents Darwin Cook's epic New Frontier. We're going to slice this one up into three pieces. I'm glad you all can join us for this one. We've been this is one of our highly anticipated Mackey series events that we've been looking forward to for quite some time now. So join with me as always are my Legion of Dudes cohorts. Tonight we have Jim, Mr. Adam Umack, and Mr. Johnny M. How's it going, guys? Great. Hey, hey. Hello. Happy Mother's Day, you mothers. You mother. <laughs> yes, it is Mother's Day. So for some of us, we're, we're we'll be in the doghouse after this episode is is over. But but this is what we go through to to bring all this content to the world. So to start this off, we're going to chop up approximately the first third of New Frontier tonight, and then like always with our maxi series, every two weeks we'll put on another installment and carry forth. So. That being said, I think I'm going to turn it over to Mr. Adam Umack, who will be the, the ringleader for this set. Thanks, Russ. Well, first of all, thanks, guys, for uh, reading New Frontier with us. Uh, originally, we had planned to do uh, The Long Halloween uh, by Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale, but after listening to the guys at Raging Bullets, Sean and Jim, do such a like amazing job with uh, The Long Halloween, I told the guys, like, I can't think of anything else to say because... Like, Sean and Jim just did a bang-up job on it. So definitely check out the Raging Bullets podcast, and you can get your uh, Batman the Long Halloween goodness from there. Wow, the new frontier. It's its, it's everything. Uh, it's Americana. It's war. It's superheroes. It's capes and tights. And a love story and, and all kinds of stuff. And I would definitely say action-adventure, too. We're going to go back uh, to our Watchmen days, and we're going to start off with a brief discussion about war comics. And I think this really applies to DC a lot, and I'd love you guys to chime in. You know, the first, I'm going to say, what, 30 or 40 pages of, of The New Frontier uh, start with uh, one of the more obscure groups from DC Comics, uh, The Losers. Um, you know, you've got Sarge, you've got John Redcloud, and, and everybody else, but war comics have really evolved from post-World War II America into, you know, what we have right now. I'm looking in front of me right now, and I see... Uh, the Jack Kirby omnibus of the losers, and knowing that we were going to do the New Frontier, I was, you know, sure to pick this up so I could kind of get the the backstory on the war comics. You know, within the losers, it was under the banner of our fighting forces. Kirby started off with number 151, a couple guys like uh, Joe Kubert, uh, excuse me, Joe Kubert and Mike Royer, Bruce Barry, and Ernie Chan. You know, uh, contributed to covers and inking and stuff along the way. But uh, I, I think what Kirby did best here is he pulled from his own experiences of serving in the armed forces to really show this like apocalyptic vision of Nazi dominance and well what it says in the cover of a small place in hell that you know war really is and i think it's interesting how we've gone from you know world war 2 veterans like kirby to modern day classics like dc's relaunch of the haunted tank through vertigo uh, Unknown Soldier, DMZ is definitely a war a, a war comic. Uh, the Losers uh, from that was relaunched in Vertigo, which is greenlit for a movie right now, and other characters like Captain America and Sergeant Rock. So I just wanted to open it up to you guys, and I want to know like uh, what have your experiences been with any of the Kirby stuff or or any of the other war comics that uh, that we were just talking about. I think uh, Robert Kaniger ought to go on your list, too, for the DC War Comics. One of the most important things that we need to know about this, especially in relation to the New Frontier, is that the story is also about the, the Silver Age and the birth of the Silver Age of comics in DC. And it's fitting that it would start with a war comic, 
with the losers, you know, they were, you know, starting to wane in popularity there in the early 60s when the Silver Age uh, Flash debuted in Showcase. We'd start out with, it's almost like uh, Darwin Cook is showing us the transition from war comics back to superhero comics because we start out with a very straightforward war comic, yet we see all these fantastic elements that are added to it as we find out what has happened to the losers. So it's kind of a metaphor for itself. If that makes any kind of sense. You guys had any experience with um, some of the war comics? Like uh, Brian K. Vaughn just released uh, Pride of Baghdad a few years ago, which pretty much an allegory for the citizens of Iraq, uh, you know, for the last, for this second Gulf War that's gone on right now. Russ? No, I you know, I've, uh, some of the ones you mentioned, you know, I pick up DMZ and I've read some of that. I read, they had online the first issue of uh, Mark Miller's uh, War Heroes. I've read some of that, but I haven't really, I mean, and in the old, you know, like reprint stuff from uh, Nick Fury and his Holland Commandos back in library days where they used to reprint a lot of stuff in big hardcovers, you know, kind of samplers and stuff, some of the Sergeant Rock stuff, but I haven't really been, I'm not a big war comics guy, I mean, that's not really bread and butter, so to speak, so I haven't, I haven't got, had a lot of exposure to it. I, I am liking some of the more modern takes on, on a lot of the stuff, which is funny because I'm, I'm a huge World War II buff, but I, for whatever reason, I just I have a hard time getting into the old golden slash silver age war stuff. I haven't found anything like overly interesting, but but I, I think we start to see a little bit of resurgence from that. I, I know they're they're talking about starting up Sergeant Rock again, and then like I said, with this War Heroes thing. So it, it you know who knows? It may be a trend that that comes back. Especially with uh, like uh, the defenders and whatnot, kind of like Avengers defenders that uh, they were part of, you know, originally too. Um, I'd also add that it's interesting that like I'm just going to say that like Nazis make the perfect enemy. You know what I mean? They make the perfect villain because automatically every connotation you know that goes with that. And I think Kirby really did capitalize that um, when he was writing and, and drawing and whatnot uh, with the losers, but. I'd also say that, uh, you know, you can also include the Punisher in that, because with uh, the uh, Punisher Born series, uh, you know, Frank Castle is, I mean, he's in Vietnam, which is, you know, infinitely full of despair and whatnot. And I, I think that, not that, you know, World War II is idolized, idealized, excuse me, in, in any of the comics, but, I mean, when you hit that Vietnam vein, it seems that there's a lot of that 90s kind of grim and gritty, like ultra-realism, I guess is a good way to put it. And I think, uh, and we can start. go ahead and start talking about the first uh, arc with the losers here, guys. And I, I think probably the most deceptive thing about the New Frontier is, is not, you know, the overall message of, of heroism or doing what's right. It's, it's, it's processing Darwin Cook's, you know, imaginatively beautiful and in some cases uh, caricature or cartoon-like uh, sequential art with <laughs> the amount of, you know, violence in the book. We're going to be taking a look at, you know, all four of the losers, you know, like seriously taking a, a, a huge, 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 uh, you know, deaths and stuff like that. And I just think it's really deceptive, but I think it's great at the same time. So we're going to be taking a look at the first couple of pages here with the losers arc in, in which we see, you know, pretty much uh, the last will and testament of these guys being written on the cave wall. That's not going to come back until the very, very end of the story. This, you know, as they land on Dinosaur Island, this may as well be, you know, like uh, right out of King Kong or something along those lines. And I was wondering what you guys thought about, uh, I guess, for what a lot of you guys have said so far, your introduction to the losers and these first couple pages. It was kind of surprising to me. It took such a realistic approach in the beginning, you know, they're writing their will on the wall, and then you have kind of like the military, like, dossier reports, you know, in the on the panels, like, explaining things, and it's in that typewritten font, you know, it just seemed like very official military type stuff, you know, and then it jumps to, like, the dinosaurs and, and everything else that's going on the island. It was, like, really a big swerve for me the first time I read it, not knowing, you know, the background of the losers at all or, or anything like that. I thought it was kind of a bold choice to to start here, and you know, looking through the notes, what Darwin Cook has you know read in interviews and stuff, this is really kind of a, a history of the DC universe from the beginning. You know, I guess the, the start of the Silver Age, but you know, he really what he did was go back chronologically, and all you know, basically every character that had been introduced, or most of the characters that had been in, been introduced in the DC continuity, and gone back and basically told the tale in chronological order. So. 
you know, even though the losers as a group weren't introduced until I think 1970 is is when they came in comic book continuity, but to throw them and basically make them the start of the story and make World War II the start for what is essentially a superhero story and what's touted as a superhero story. I mean, you know, when you look at the cover of the book and, and everything else, it's it's images, you know, the characters we know and love, the Supermans and Batmans and Wonder Womans and, and Martian Manhunter and stuff. So to dedicate 30, almost 40 pages to to essentially what's a World War II war story, I thought it was a pretty bold choice. And um, and I think it I think it works well because I think it, it just sets a really cool tone for the book. I mean, you know, you get a dinosaur that gets, you know, takes a bazooka to the chest. I mean, how do you how do you go wrong with that? I think John makes a really good point about the realism. Uh, you know, starting out, it just seems like you're starting, as you're beginning, you're reading a straight-up uh, war comic that could be a chronicle from, you know, the... The end of World War II or the Korean War or what have you. Um, the losers kind of, like I said before, kind of like you were saying also, Russ, kind of said he's telling the whole story of the, you know, the DCU coming into the Silver Age. And, um, the losers, I think in this really represent war comics themselves. They were super popular there in the fifties. And, uh, all the, there were pretty much on the stands were war comics and romance comics because of what had happened, you know, the, uh, with, uh, Frederick Wortham, the seduction of the innocent and all that, you know, with EC comics. I think we all know that history well enough that we don't have to, you know, go that, you know, too in depth on that. But I think in this, the losers kind of symbolize war comics themselves. And then, as as you said, he's trying to tell the story of the uh, the birth of the Silver Age chronologically. It would only make sense he would start with the war comic because that's the beginning. You know, that's was was happening before in, with DC before the Silver Age uh, actually began. The rules that Darwin Cook set up for the New Frontier were basically that the timeline is actually a, a real actual timeline. So from 1945, when it opens to 1960, when it ends, follows the beginning of the losers in, in real time, where they really were, quote-unquote, in 1945, to 1956, where uh, Barry Allen literally becomes the Flash, to 1960, which was the debut of the Justice League and the Brave and the Bold number 28. So since the Brave and the Bold cover is the very last page of the very last issue, this, I mean, these pages that we're looking at right now, this is a literal timeline, and it's a, it's a sequential timeline, actually, of the DC universe. And, it, you know, you start off with the and the other thing that, you know, kind of grabs you is, is that, you know, one by one, all these characters are dying. So they go through and, and introduce them all, and as you go along, you kind of see how they all die, except for, you know, one, by the time you get to the to the end of the World War II side of things, everybody's dead, flagged. I don't think it's any coincidence that Darwin Cook also began page one with the with Dinosaur Island as the very first, well, second if you don't count the title card, panel. Just like we saw in Watchmen, <laughs> the villains in the very first panel. That's that's the reveal. Remember when Adrian's uh, van was pulling past the, wa- <laughs> the comedian's yeah. bloodstain? This kind of like, this is continued in the new frontier. And as they spend more time on the island, they meet Colonel Flagg. He was, you know, on an- another place in the island after they had their run with the T-Rex, uh, you know, planning explosives. Colonel Flagg, whose, you know, legacy has a lot to do with the rest of uh, New Frontier, you know, comes into play here. And I, I think that, you know, this is just kind of like the, the Joe Kubert uh, homages with the uh, hats on the rifles as kind of like grave sites. Just as, as many homages that are that are in here, I think the story itself is just an homage to, you know, the books that he read while he was a kid. And that was war comics and mystery comics and the Western stuff, you know, and the Zane Gray, you know, dime store pulp novels and stuff, too. When was this originally released in the floppies? What year? Originally published in single magazine form in D.C. New Frontier 1 through 6, copyright 2004 D.C. Cool. March 2004 is issue number one. So right about, we're right about five years. What do you guys think of the, we talk about, just kind of like we did with Watchmen, where we talk about style here. Pretty much this book, other than full-page splashes, I don't know that there's any double-page spreads. I think there may be one or two. Pretty much follows a three-panel format, you know, as where, you know, with Watchmen we saw, for the most part, a nine-panel format. But this book pretty much follows a three-panel format. And then, you know, when there are some exceptions where it's not three-panel, you know, sometimes the middle panel split up in four, three or four, you know, mini-panels. But the style of the book maintains that um you know, ratio where they do subdivide. It's subdivided within a third or within two-thirds 
panel. So again, it gives you kind of that widescreen, or at least for me, it gave me that widescreen feel in, in reading and looking at it. Very cinematic, the tone that, come, that came across. I think it's pretty awesome uh, to see that. What I can tell you is, um, I, I'm going to say about three months ago, I bought a page from Albert Moy at albertmoy.com from Darwin Cook of The New Frontier. We'll talk about that one in a little bit, but um, this book was actually really, really, really chopped up when it got into the hands of editorial. And I don't mean storyline-wise, but what I mean is the actual sequentials. A friend of mine uh, owns a page from the Captain Cold Flash fight. That said, a lot of the um, three panels are, are split up. So like he, the page he has is like when Captain Cold bursts in and uh, Barry Allen's ring pops, so his costume flies out. Well, those panels aren't actually on the original published page. They're scattered throughout that Flash arc. So what we're seeing is, like, the final layout of everything. That wasn't always true. What I'm saying, Russ, is, like, a lot of things got... Think of, like, like three-card Monty. You know, like, they just kind of got shuffled around. So I think a lot of the changes that did happen, from looking at the artwork to the published page, were probably to keep uniformity a, a little more tight as far as this goes in the storytelling process. I was I was surprised, and uh, I didn't buy this in floppies at all. I went straight to the Absolute from a friend's recommendation, so I got it online, you know, at a, at a good discount. And I was like, did I just pay whatever it was, fifty bucks for three panels on a page? And I was really dissatisfied reading it first without finishing the story. It really grew on me though too because. It's a lot. I mean, you feel like a kid reading the Sunday comics where everything's so huge. And it was a little off-putting, but, you know, I definitely grew to like it, you know, so much so that I wanted to have one of them, too, you know? It gives him a lot of room with the storytelling as well. I mean, he can make the, the pace as, as, as quick or as slow as he needs to just by, uh, you know, the captions, um, you know, putting more or, or fewer words in those three panels. You know, there are some pages you'll flip through in this very quickly because it's all action, and then there are other pages that are, you know, dense with dialogue, like when we meet Flag, some of the other scenes. I want to talk really quickly about just Darwin Cook's art style, you know, in general. It just seems like it's a this really good marriage of, like, Kirby and and stuff from the Bruce Timm verse and uh, Alex Toth just, like, all thrown into a blender. And I really enjoy his style, and I can't think of any other artist who could have even touched him on this project at all. I think a lot of the Kirby influence for Darwin Cook is, like, the eyebrows and, like, the, not the eyes, but, like, the, like, upper part of the face, I think, comes from Kirby with the hair and, like, the forehead arrangement and stuff like that. You know, and as a, as a storyboard artist from Batman the Animated Series, you know, Bruce Timm was the one who really got him engaged in doing stuff like Gotham Adventures, of course, Wolverine uh, dupe. <laughs> um, and on and, and, uh, the Batman Ego hardcover that was collected too with some of the stuff from Batman Black and White. Yeah, it's, it's funny for me because typically when I, when I read Superhero Affair, my complaint on art usually is when it's kind of cartoony. Who's doing Wizard of Oz? Scotty Young. Scotty Young. Thank you. You know, like Scotty Young when he was on New X-Men. I just, I had a real problem with with that, and, and not to say that Scotty Young's not a good artist, because I look at the stuff he's doing on Wizard of Oz, and it's phenomenal, but I just didn't see that style fitting in that book or those books. Same thing kind of a little bit with Umberto Ramos, a lot of exaggeration and stuff like that, but you know, looking at Darwin Cook stuff, again, it has kind of that almost cartoony style to it, but it, it just works here. I mean, it just, and I don't know if it's because it's kind of a period piece, so I can kind of, you know, my brain detaches itself from you know, the mainstream, you know, I can kind of lighten up a little bit. Didn't talk about overall impressions in the beginning, but this is, to me, this is the greatest thing I've read since probably Kingdom Come, you know, 10 or, you know, 15 years ago. Um, I just, I love this, this story. I love the style. I love, you know, the, the, the whole chronology and the history and everything else. But the, his art style and choice is just, just, you know, blew me away when I was reading this book, which, like I said, for me is a little, is a little out of, out of character for what I typically like, but... But it just really, really blew me away. So John Cloud and Colonel Flag more or less have it out with each other. Colonel Flag gets on a raft and sets sail to get way the heck off of Dinosaur Island. John Cloud, the last of the losers, more more or less goes on a suicide mission to take the life of the T-Rex that has taken his friends which is probably one of the coolest splash pages, I would say, I've seen, which is him with two grenades, pins pulled, 
just diving headfirst into the mouth of a Tyrannosaurus Rex to, to blow it up. Silhouetted, you know, the hats and helmets of his friends, you know, silhouetted in the background as the explosion goes off. And as he said in the annotations, you know, John Cloud's the first hero of the book. And he's, an, and he's a Native American as well. The subsequent years from 45 to 48 that the book goes through see shout from the Spear of Destiny, which, co- which has come into the Hellboy mythos and movies um, that Hitler was evidently, quote-unquote, in this world under control. They talk about the arms race between the United States and the Soviet Union. They talk about House of Un-American Activity, excuse me, Un-American Activities uh, Commission from Senator Joseph McCarthy and how more or less uh, Justice Society of America, its uh, roster, was disbanded um, because of the Red Scare, which uh, goes back to a story that Paul Levitz published a number of years before The New Frontier came out. We also see the emergence of the Spectre, Shazam and the Fawcett characters, Batman, Wonder Woman. So what we get after the Justice Society is disbanded is the appearance of kind of like that magical aspect of the DC Universe, which is the appearance of the Spectre and Shazam, and also uh, Batman, the Suicide Squad, Wonder Woman, and Superman um, make their first appearances. A lot of those guys, which we'll be talking about pretty soon. And then we go down to uh, a familiar face, which is uh, young Hal Jordan. Uh, so much so that you know he, uh, he's got his own model planes, and years before Hal himself is going to take flight, he meets his own idol, and that's uh, Chuck Yeager. If you talk about nostalgia... You know, uh, Chuck Yeager even says that he remembers Hal's father, and of course Martin Jordan died while his son was looking on. Not that, not that unlike when Bruce Wayne witnessed his parents dying in the alley. And Hal's reading Black Hawk comics, and we'll talk about those guys a little later too. Pretty neat sequence with young Hal Jordan. What did you guys think? I love kind of the homage to an homage where they have the the scene where you know young Hal Jordan shows up in Pancho's bar, you know, which is and looking for Chuck Yeager, which is pretty much. You know, straight out of the the right stuff. So whenever whenever I look at a lot of this early, especially in this book, a lot of the early Hal Jordan stuff, and they kind of go back on that, I always it always just brings up the whole the right stuff for me. And Chuck Yeager actually walks in, and you know Hal wants him to sign a copy of the the X one that he carved out of wood. I love the um, the coloring, and the and the lighting and, and shadow work. I think is like excellent. I'm looking at Hal talking to the, I guess, bartender lady, the barmaid, the, uh, right, when he's asking about um, Chuck Yeager. And then when Chuck Yeager kind of comes up from behind him on that page, and you just have like the, I don't know, the, the, the shadows on the wall, and that, you know, you could tell where the light source is coming from against her face and everything. I just think it was really well done. I think it's cool that the uh, real life inspiration for Hal Jordan uh, gets to meet Hal Jordan. Because the, it was that whole spirit of the space race and the guys in the right stuff and everything that kind of inspired the Silver Age hero. I mean, it's no, it's no coincidence that Hal Jordan is a test pilot. We take another quick time jump to 1952, where our man's running across the rooftops. We saw this in Justice League of America, the new frontier, the animated feature. This was shown in the opening credits. And the headline by Iris West, Barry's main squeeze, says that Washington declares war on the mystery men. I, th- I really liked uh, the prose piece in here, and it was really cool that, Lo- uh, not Lois Lane, but um, that Iris was um, was writing this, and for, uh, I believe it was Political Affairs magazine. And there's uh, a few nods to, uh, you know, Rex Tyler, uh, our man, and also uh, Task Force X's Suicide Squad. But I think one of the main things to hit here is, is the vein of uh, being a mystery man. We've seen books going through a lot of the DC canon, like Kingdom Come, where... You know, the superheroes were called uh, metahumans, or at least under Magog's role, it was called metahumans, right? Uh, this kind of like new 90s juiced up, roided out character. Mystery Men has a lot of, you know, innocence to it. And despite being disbanded, the JSA, that is, um, and we'll see uh, Ted Grant a little bit later, I think it was really interesting that when Jeff Johns relaunched Justice Society of America a few Decembers ago, Ted Grant Wildcat won in that book, was very, very keen when he was talking with Alan Scott and Jay Garrick, you know, he's like, we're not superheroes, we're mystery men. And that seems to be, you know, the more idyllic 1950s time frame of things. They were not writing the line of superhero and vigilante, but there was that kind of like romantic element to heroism, too, 
they weren't, you know, juiced up because, you know, Ted Grant, you know, he doesn't have any powers. He's a boxer. And that really wasn't, he, he wasn't in the, in the Justice Society of America arc. It was very important that, you know, he impressed upon his son, Wildcat 2, that you're still very much part of this fabric. And in the case of the Justice Society, part of a family, too. So I, I thought that was kind of a neat shout out. And then the second part we're going to see that you guys can take us through is test pilot Hal Jordan is in the United States Air Force. I think within the historical context or whatever, it makes total sense that the JSA would have to uh, go up against the uh, House on Un-American Activities uh, Committee, especially the part in the pros piece here where um, this is Nixon's idea to go after the mystery men. I thought that was pretty cool and very historically savvy. Uh, as far as like you know, the timeline that we spoke about before. Also, this great picture of Superman putting the beat down on Batman, which is almost an exact opposite of the Frank Miller picture of Batman putting the beat down on Superman from uh, The Dark Knight Returns. I wonder if that's like an intentional thing, because, I mean, it's almost staged and set the same way. Yeah, and I, I thought it was cool that they kind of explained, you know, that whole thing that they make it seem like you know, Batman got the the upper hand on Superman and was able to... The reason Batman's still around is because he de-bested Superman. I just thought that was kind of cool. So, yeah, again, I, I definitely see, Jim, what you're saying with the kind of the, the parallels to, to Dark Knight Returns, you know, with that whole Batman and Superman going, you know, mano y mano, which in a normal sense would be kind of ludicrous, you know, because of the power differential between the two. And it ties into what Adam's saying about, you know, mystery men um, and, and the first generation of Watchmen, too. I hate to bring Watchmen back into it, but they don't have any powers. They're just very skilled athletes or, or combatants. And uh, it very much is, they very much were products of the Golden Age. I mean, if you look at the Silver Age heroes, they, you know, most of them do have powers or abilities, or at least super science uh, on their side. How's all grown up, and we see Hal Jordan working for the United States Air Force, so much so that, you know, throughout his maneuvers, he runs into a, a good bit of trouble that Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen are reporting on via helicopter. As Hal's plane goes down, uh, he encounters a North Korean soldier, and after downing him against his own wishes, Hal's got to make probably the toughest decision, not only of his life so far, but, you know, to save his life. And that decision uh, is to take a life, if you can follow that, <laughs> that run-on sentence. An interesting, interesting look at Hal Jordan, and a decision I've never had to see him make, sort of being parallax and wiping out everybody, <laughs> but a pretty cool flight sequence, too, I'd say. Yeah, I dig the whole action yeah. sequence with uh, you know him ripping the cord for the other pilot in flight on his way down. It's just, uh, it's, again, with that three-panel spread that Russ was talking about, it really conveys the, uh, the kineticism of, of the action. Definitely cinematic, like you guys are saying. You know, you could see that in a big summer action blockbuster, that scene. And I think, I know we'll talk about the, the, the animated movie later, but I think it's things like that, unfortunately, that suffered a little bit, you know, w was was brevity, you know, where we lost the stuff in, in the beginning and loved to see that go another 15, 20 minutes longer because I think we could have gotten more of the stuff that were set up in the book, you know, translated to the screen. And the scene where he actually does take the life, I think, is really, uh, I mean, is really speaks volumes about what comics as a medium can do. I mean, you see the face of the Korean soldier, uh, you know, in, in, in fear. And then there's just a panel of nothing but red and a small bam in the center. And then the next panel is Hal, like, recoiling in guilt, kind of, in his face for what he's done, because he knows he's killed this guy. And Jimmy has to pull him away. It's like, he's just, he's just frozen. You know, he can't believe that that was a decision that he had to make. You know, Lois is calling him back to the chopper. I hear the Viet Cong are, are still after them, but he does say that, you know... This is just straight-up survival. Yeah, all of it narrowed down to this filthy trench and something I'd never considered survival. From a storytelling perspective, you know, you're looking at several pages dedicated to what happens probably over a, you know, 15 to 20, you know, 30-second time period. You're starting with how parachuting looks like, you know, he's starting to open his eyes and... We get that, you know, basically one page is him opening his eyes to, to look down. And then from the time he lands on the, the Korean soldier, you know, and then they get into a confrontation. And, you know, it's just, it, you know, something that would have happened very, very fast. Here, he's taking the time to go through, you know, page after page of trying to get that emotion across and that what, what exactly is happening. It's funny that Hal makes the jump in this book and in the current series, too, from, I don't want to say working for, but, like, not perpetrating, because obviously, you know, there's the whole idea of being a, you know, veteran and protecting the country, but 
you know, the job of the military is destruction. They're not a, a peacekeeping force. The police are a, a peacekeeping force. And how makes the jump from, you know, the United States Army to the Green Lantern Corps, which, you know, as we all know in colloquial terms, is space cops. So does Hal have to make some bad decisions, or excuse me, some rough decisions in, in Green Lantern books? Absolutely. You know, he was taken uh, in the Wanted Hal Jordan arc that uh, was, I believe, the third, yeah, the third Green Lantern trade. Uh, you know, Hal's taken as a prisoner of war. So I, I just thought that was neat that Johns and Ivan Rice, you know, included still the fa- the military aspect of Hal's career as a character in the modern day comics too. That was a you know four or five issue arc. That was during the um, one year later angle that, that DC was taking as far uh, for their books go. I think the really uh, like the irony of this whole sequence is that throughout the entire fight, he's trying to remember the Korean words. For you know, war is over. Make war no more, because he just heard that the war was coming to an end, and he finally is able to remember the phrase uh, in the helicopter with Jimmy and Lois on the way back. Chapter four starts off with the title called "Gods and Monsters," uh, taking this from the title of the 1998 movie, uh, pretty much fiction uh, of the last days of one of the. Um, Directors, I forget, uh, Ian McKellen starred in this. I, I can't remember the name of the Hollywood director, though. But uh, this has nothing to do with that. I think uh, Darwin just picked this for his uh, writing chops because it makes so much sense because I don't think anything quite screams Silver Age like the Martian Manhunter. And um, we see the introduction of Martian Manhunter unwittingly taking a life. Um, yeah, um, when- the, the movie you're talking about, I'm sorry, is about director James Whale, who uh, directed Frankenstein. So it does kind of fit in with the uh, the Martian Manhunter thing, and that had a lot to do with um, you know his sexual orientation too, but uh, totally with um, the Frankenstein aspect of Martian Manhunter uh, completely too. You know, you know he's brought into this world from a signal from space, and you know what was one of Kennedy's you know goals was, but was part of the space race too. So we can kind of see this taking shape. Interesting uh, that Dr. Erdell, not that unlike, uh, kind of like a guidance character, kind of like a, a gateway keeper for a lot of characters, is that kind of like wise old sage Gandalf type. You know, Dr. Erdell more or less tells him, you've got to be careful. Don't reveal yourself to everyone because they won't be able to accept you. Now, that's either heavy-handed tolerance talk like Star Trek and the black and white and white and black people, or, you know, he's just stunningly correct that who could accept Martian Manhunter in I'm going to say probably one of the more grotesque iterations of the character. I mean, like, I've never seen John Jones look quite so grisly and, like, well, repulsive than uh, the way Darwin Cook drew him, which is pretty crazy for a, you know, light, kind of heavy-lined artist. Every way I've seen John, I I haven't seen him quite like this before. Yeah, I thought it was a pretty bold choice depicting him this way, because like you said, Adam, I've I've never seen him depicted this way either, and I thought it was interesting. I thought it was kind of off-putting. I just, I didn't understand the design choice, but, you know, in the context of the story, I guess it makes sense, because truly, us as the reader taking this depiction of of this character that way, you know, I could imagine, you know, he shows up walking down the street in broad daylight, what, you know, what folks would think. So, as opposed to his later form, where he's a little more smooth, and the bald head and, and all that, where at least he looks human. So, so it's, it, I, I, I'm totally agreeing with you there as, as far as choice of, of style here. Does this fall in line with Martian Manhunter's previous origin, or is this fill in between the lines, or like a total reboot, or did they follow it to the letter? How, did, how does this look against that? That's pretty much the origin of Martian Manhunter, that he was brought by Professor Adele uh, while he was trying to observe Mars and accidentally brought to Earth, and then Adele died. So I don't I don't see any major changes in that. I think it's interesting that when you look at the parallel characters of the Green Lantern and the Martian Manhunter in this, that we we meet Green Lantern at his most human first as an a you know a fanboy child and then you know having to take a life and having to because he couldn't remember a few words in Korean and then we meet the Martian Manhunter for the first time as his most alien. I mean he's uh, you know as you said you know you've never seen him drawn like that before it's very uh, you know very off-putting and I think that's intentional on uh, Cook's part. It's kind of like that that death rattle, but it's also like you know words to live by. You know just like the question had Professor Rodor you know uh, helping him with you know the gasp or or uh, you know how the question also had taught. This is kind of like I mean it sets up. <laughs> it sets up Martian Manhunter's character. Caution: Do what you can, more or less, to help them get by. And probably one of the bigger—I don't want to say retcons, but probably one of the, of the bigger changes, character-wise, 
is, you know, here we are 78 pages into the story, and we finally see Superman on panel this time, not just in news clippings. And what he discovers is something he already knows, but we didn't. But uh, Wonder Woman is an ultra, ultra feminist, and uh, she's bigger than him as well. And uh, that, you know, raised some eyebrows, certainly in the fan community. But what she's done, more or less, is she's liberated this part of Indochina so much so that uh, she's put the women, uh, she's armed the women, excuse me. She's more or less telling Cal to take a hike and <laughs> we're going to do things proper. And what she means by that is her way in this next sequence. I love this this sequence, just the whole setup where you know he's he's coming up and he sees you know they show all the men that have been shot and some that are burned and you know there's all these fires laying around and you know Clark's just thinking to himself you know all the savagery and butchery and you know that he he's starting to get the feeling that there's more than war just going on here that there's you know somebody's got an agenda. It's kind of cool because you, you see the news clipping, but you know when he comes upon this hut. You know where there's there's stuff going on. You can see laughing and to you know there's you know it's called a toast and and then Clark shows up um, in the doorway, and that you get that and it's everything's dark. You know you get you, you can it's night outside and you get all the darkness and then even that bottom panel very dark, and then you flip the page and get that big full page spread of Wonder Woman standing on top of a table with her arms stretched out with a you know bottle of one hand, one hand and a chalice in another. And all these women armed and standing around all looking like they're having a good time. I just, it's just very, very powerful. I just, I love this sequence. I'm, I'm glad this is one of the things that they kept in for the animated and did an awesome job. I definitely agree. This is something that really makes Wonder Woman like an interesting, more interesting character to me. I mean, the feminism too often is played off as, you know, her getting angry that like somebody wanted to hold a door for her, stupid stuff like that. This really shows, you know, the seriousness of her Amazon heritage. These women around her with, like, the machetes and the weapons and everything while she's standing up on a table. I mean, that's really, like Russ said, powerful stuff. Plus, I mean, we just got done with the Kingdom Come talking about how Wonder Woman is from this total warrior culture. It makes total sense that she would, you know, see the plight of these women and want to, you know, elevate them to almost like an Amazonian status. You know, from from what she's used to, we kind of see Wonder Woman go rogue, and you know, Superman trying to reel her in, and Wonder Woman's like, ah, "There's the door, spaceman." You know, if you don't like what I'm doing, it has a very Joseph Conrad, Heart of Darkness slash Apocalypse Now feel. It, 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 they sent Cal to you know go up the river to 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 go find Wonder Woman and bring her back because she's gone, you know, off the reservation. So I, I just thought that was, a, I guess, either intended or unintended um, homage to to that to that story. Well, think of how Heart of Darkness went too. I mean, you basically had you you had the, the lead character and that those narrative sequences. You know, think about part of the opening credits of Heart of Darkness and some of the opening montages. They were you know dossiers and stuff like that too. And it, it, I'm not going to say New Fallen New well New Frontier follows suit only with how they present the material too, because you go from John Cloud's narration to the report that Ace Morgan did to how narrating, and now you find, you know, Martian Manhunter, and there's a lot of different voices, but I think a, f- a couple of things help that out. I think that the three-panel basic, the, the basic three-panel layout um, slows things down. I mean, as fast as you get through them, um, it's very much like take your time, take everything all in as you read, too. The news clippings and prose pieces that are that are put in here, too. Also, the art style change, excuse me, the, the, the panel layout stays the same, but the caption boxes, methods of that change, like if you look on 86 in the absolute, like they are silhouetted against the actual art versus um, just free-floating, omniscient kind of uh, word boxes too. So, you know, the letter boxes change, but I also think that they adjust enough that you can follow it and recognize, you know, who exactly that voice is. And I think um, Wonder Woman certainly has the biggest one. She's definitely the boldest character we've seen so far. Yeah, I I was one of those two that I didn't understand the gripe I guess some people had with Wonder Woman being taller than Superman and and yeah. kind of towering over him. I, I think, agree. To me, I thought that that was just so fitting for what they were trying to to do and making her a stronger character. I thought it was I thought it was excellent. I didn't have a a problem with it at all. I, I thought it was an interesting choice on costume design, going back to you know, kind of the early signs of Superman, where he, the S symbol had the black in the background, and it's kind of funny. It's almost almost like a homebrew kind of suit because the S kind of overlaps into the 
to the yellow border around the, mm-hmm. the shield symbol and and it's you know it's not like perfectly proportioned and kind of it doesn't fit super tight on them you know you can see kind of the the wrinkles you know where it's tucked in to the to the shorts part and stuff i thought it was really interesting that you know again we're not and same thing goes for wonder woman you know she's got the bracelets on and they're they almost feel like they're you, you have the, the impression that if she took these off these things would be huge you know and very very heavy um, very weighty. I thought it was interesting that I thought it was a good choice. I, I guess is, is what I'm getting at as far as you know character design and costume design. You know, to kind of give it a kind of like in style, um, you know, and look, you know, with Alex Ross because obviously very, you know, very very different. But you know, kind of the same thing that Alex Ross does, where you can tell they look like real clothes. Not everything's not form fitting and it's tailored to you know sculpt to every muscle and and all mm-hmm. that, you know, it's just, it's more natural. Look. He also draws her very much in the style of women of the 50s. I mean, she's not, she's not a supermodel body with giant boobs. You know what I mean? She's, uh, she's curvy. She's like a buxom 50s woman. Yeah. Would you say a pinup? Yeah, I I'd would. go that far. Because what I'm looking at is the pinup calendar uh, right behind Wonder Woman. And really, that's everything she's fighting against, right? That kind of stereotype. And I was watching the Wonder Woman direct-to-DVD release that Warner Brothers Animation did. And you know how, like, something's in front of your face for your entire life and you don't really see the forest for the trees? I, You know, one of the commentators on one of the bonus features said that, you know, if you look at Wonder Woman, all of her weapons are jewelry. You know, the bracelets, the tiara, the earrings, not on here, but the lasso. It's, it's all like she's using uh, typical female paraphernalia to... It's kind of like her own spin on things. And I, I never really, I guess, kind of like observed that about Wonder Woman before because really my experience is next to nothing with Wonder Woman aside from like the big DC events or whenever she's included in stuff I'm reading now. I really saw this. I'm not going to say rampant femininity, but uh, that approach of mixing mythology with modern day stuff because if you look at her dress too you know that's out of like you know alexander the great or you know sparta or 300 or something like that the way that there's that kind of like um greek slash roman influence on her character design too which is pretty cool yeah plus a woman in the 50s would wear a skirt she wouldn't wear little hot pants now we're going to take a jump right now to gotham city where martian manhunters uh made a life for himself that life is, like <laughs> most Americans, revolves around uh, television. A pretty cool sequence here with uh, Martian Manhunter. And you can see, as the sequentials go further, he not only decides on a personality, Detective John Jones, but you can also see the scraps of paper on his wall are building up. It's almost like uh, John Jones, his, his Martian sensibility, is picking up on a larger conspiracy. You can see from the Groucho Marx panel, all the way down to the the Indian panel, for lack of a better word, that he's keeping track of, you know, these different heroes and, and headlines and rotation of the earth and all kinds of scribblings on his wall. Well, I love Bugs Bunny in general, but um, I, I love the Bugs Bunny panel and how he's chugging, like, the bottles of soda. Can't you just see him watching the kids programming at that point and, like, every commercial is for, like, you know, Yoo-Hoo or... Coca-Cola, you know, kids' drinks and stuff. The other thing I wanted to mention was, and Adam just kind of talked about it, I I noticed the scraps of paper, and then on the next page, he's got, like, that equation going on the wall. Like, he's, like, hand-scribbling some kind of, like, equation on the wall. But then when he gets down to the bottom and he says, you know, my Martian name is John Jones. Here I'll be on Earth. I'll be known as John Jones. Everything's cleaned off the wall. So do you think they're saying, like, now he's officially undercover, like he took all that stuff down, cleaned off the equation, and now he's ready to go? Or is it like a time, like a back-and-forth bouncing thing? I think it's what you said first off. So he's kind of like, he's in deep now, like now he's taken on this new persona, and he cleaned up all the, any evidence of him doing this research, or... Yeah, I think I think he's also taking what Dr. Erdell said, not to heart, but like... Well, I guess too hard and, you know, extremely seriously because, you know, he, until he runs into uh, Batman, he lives his life as John Jones. You know, it's, he says, my Marsh name's John Jones. But now, you know, he's straight up, you know, detective good guy with Slam Bradley and a few friends in a little bit. And I think he's, he's finally come to the conclusion, too, that he's here. Take it too is maybe he's kind of crunched all the numbers and figured things out. And, you know, he truly come came to the conclusion that, He's going to be on, here on Earth, and he's going to, you know, live among them and and try and do right. That's like uh, the Scarecrow from the Wizard of Oz. He's afraid of fire. <laughs> 
I don't know how much we'll get into the the animated DVD movie of this, but that this is one scene that they did do a great job with in the animated. You know, him morphing in front of the TV. Aren't you so glad DC's under the Warner Brothers umbrella that you could see Bugs Bunny? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they show the you know the test pattern on the you screen, hear the national anthem playing in the background and stuff. Yeah, it was it was very very well done. So we're gonna skip ahead uh, a year to um, 1956 when Barry Allen became Flash. And we also see a sequence of what else is happening in the world. Russia launching Sputnik and uh, President Eisenhower starting his second term in America. And uh, we see uh, that uh, Barry is running like crazy and he's reading Flash comics with Jay Garrick on the cover. Up to 1957, we kind of get the narrative again in the uh, word boxes. This time we're following Slam Bradley and um, Detective John Jones. You know, Slam and, uh, who, uh, again, first appeared in Detective Comics, and uh, John are uh, together, and they're on a case. And the case is that uh, the son of a prominent financier has been kidnapped. Now, I read that, and I I first thought of uh, the first issue of Jeff Loeb and Jim Lee's Hush when the kid got kidnapped. But um, we go through, we find, uh, more or less, uh, John... Uh, breaks the door over in uh, true Dick Tracy uh, gumshoe detective style, and they see not not just the the kid who's been kidnapped, but uh, the Batman in true Bob Kane style, I'd say, fighting off a cult, and um, the cult is basically demanding that the kid ha- go through a blood sacrifice. Batman more or less saves the day. John Jones, Martian Manhunter, is more or less frozen in his tracks because of all the fire. Uh, The two of them, uh, Slam and John Jones, find a book, and the leader of the cult says, and this is the first mention of it, although, you know, going back when everything's all said and done, that uh, without the center, there is no holding. And the center, C-E-N-T-R, kind of a little British twist on the spelling there, is what we know to be, well, the main villain of the book is the center. A really cool sequence. Yeah, and uh, Darwin Cook also used uh, Slam Bradley in uh, his Catwoman graphic novel, uh, Selena's Big Score. I don't know if it's the same sound as Slam Bradley as we see here, but it's the same yep. uh, character from DC. Uh, also, uh, an important thing to note here that plays later into Batman's character is that when they do rescue the child, the child's afra- as afraid of Batman as he was of the cult people trying to kill him. And screams, you know, no, no, stay away, stay away. And uh, we see later in the story how that plays into uh, Batman and his character. Yeah, that was almost kind of like, I don't know if you guys have seen Dare, the movie Daredevil, but it was kind of the same thing where Daredevil's kind of wailing away on this guy and, you know, it scares the kid and, you know, he tries to convince the kid that, no, I'm, you know, one of the good guys. And when I read this, I kind of, it kind of made me think back to that, that, you know, here he is, one of the good guys, and he's taken aback because this kid is almost more afraid of Batman than he was of the guys, you know, dressed in robes that were, you know, trying to stab him two minutes ago. I love that Batman doesn't say anything in the whole exchange here. Yeah. It's kind of what happened to the Batman character, too. He went from these really, during this period of time, he went from super dark, pulpy, kind of, you know, the Shadow-style adventures to the more goofy, you know, lighthearted Silver Age adventures that we think of when we think of Silver Age Batman. Yeah, the cult cult is kind of an interesting twist on things because uh, I I would say the closest thing to this book right now is probably the Crime Bible. Like in 52, they demand a blood sacrifice. The cult leader says... Uh, you are the tribute without the center, all must fall away. Yours is the glory of nourishing the center's strength. And what a MacGuffin, uh, MacGuffin, I don't know, what an invisible um, enemy the center is for a lot of this book, too. Russ? What's the, um, is it Matt Wagner that, that recently did the um, Batman and the Mad Monk or something like yeah, that? Yeah, good That's, series. Yeah, very similar um, to this scene, don't you think, Jim? Totally, and uh, the same period in Batman's history, too. Like, very early on in Batman, uh, when he was still more of a, like I said, b- more before Robin, you know, when he was more of a pulp hero, you know, uh, than, you know, kind of goofy, uh, bat gadgety guy that we got later in the Silver Age. But yeah, I was I was going to mention that. I didn't know if anyone else had read that. But Batman and the Mad Monk by what Matt Wagner is definitely uh, reminiscent of what's going on here as well. Interesting that, you know, Wagner also did the original Trinity, uh, you know, series and then graphic novel uh, for DC. And, you know, here we are 100 pages into the book, and finally we have all three of DC's Trinity on the board. And I will just say this. I think that that DC's uh, B and C tier characters have done such a remarkable job on their own, and of course with Darwin Cook's help, of, of, man, oh man, creating an awesome story. 
point proven. You can do anything with any character you want. I mean, look, we just spent, you know, 20 minutes talking about the losers. Not geek cred, but that, that speaks so, so much volumes for, you know, comics as an art form and also with what Darwin did as well. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's definitely a testament to, to Darwin, you know, for sure. Because, yeah, you're right. kind of talks to the book as a whole. I mean, if you really, really think about it, how much do you see of Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman? You know, in the big scheme of things, very little. And, you know, we get to, you know, not to jump too far ahead, but, I mean, we don't even see Green Lantern until, you know, pretty much the end of the book. So, you know, just to, just to like you are saying, Adam, a testament to, to good storytelling. You know, good storytelling is good storytelling. Loved about the DCU, though, is that the, uh, the, the cohesiveness of the universe and the, the second-tier characters and the way they all fit, you know, together – in, into one big story. I mean, um, my very first comic when I was a little kid was uh, a Justice League because of uh, having seen Super the Super Friends cartoon and you know seeing the same characters on the the comic. I think that's part of the appeal for me of the DCU in general and in New Frontier in particular are the supporting characters, you know, the not the A list players, um, you know, like we see in JSA now or you know so, or some of the other books. Batman is really regarded as a Catholic in some. And some circles of uh, fandom that kind of explore like the religious aspect of things, and it takes place in the Catholic Church. Now, whether that be his lineage or his heritage or whatever the case may be, I mean, right now in you know the current time frame of how comics have gone, I mean, w- with arcs and stuff, you know, he certainly has respect for the dead, yada yada. But you know, uh, Batman's really portrayed more as an agnostic more than anything, probably because of the traumas and probably because of well, spending your life in the trenches as much as he is. It's hard to see the good in, in some cases. But um, but we jump over to uh, Chapter 5 now with uh, Ted Grant fighting Cassius Clay, <laughs> which at 38 years old, as they said, you know, it, it's a heck of a time in, in Vegas at the, at the Sands Hotel with Frank Sinatra playing. He, he, out of all the things, we get, a, we get a splash page, not of the cult, but Cassius Clay Muhammad Ali knocking out or at least sending him against the ropes, knocking out Ted Grant. What a cool, uh, what a cool sequence here! And you really get to see the <laughs> the lows, the dream sequences, the glory. Uh, Ted Grant uh, sipping out of uh, mar- uh, margaritas or whatever out of a coconut. Ultimately, while uh, a lot of his friends like Selena Kyle and Dinah Lance and and every <laughs> and everybody else look on, you get to see that kind of like last hurrah that Ted Grant gets as he knocks out Cassius Clay. As a big fan of um, boxing, I, I really like this. It really, you know, we talk about it being a period piece. I mean, the the 50s and 60s in, in Cassius Clay and Muhammad Ali, it was really like the golden age of boxing. It was big events. It was the place to be seen. And I think they really captured the whole Vegas event aspect of it in, in these pages. My favorite part of the sequence is uh, with uh, Dinah Lance, Selena Kyle, Bruce Wayne and uh, Oliver Queen cheering on the fight. Selena looks up. Selena's wearing the purple dress, you know, like the old Catwoman costume. What do you think, Selena? It might be time for Plan B, Dinah. And if you weren't into the D- into DC, you wouldn't know, you know, right. these people were. But immediately, because you are, you know, it's like, oh, wait a minute, you know, maybe they, you know, they're and they're switching partners because uh, you know Selena's been paired off with Ollie instead of Bruce, and and Dinah's been paired off with Bruce instead of. Ollie. And plus, too, if you look at the uh, <laughs> if you look at the jacket of the sportscaster, I'm not a Ditko fan by any stretch, but I do know the Creeper when I see it. And I just thought it was so cool that Jack Ryder's uh, is the announcer uh, during Ted Grant's fight. Huh. I didn't catch that at all. Well, they don't exactly say it, and he does have it in the annotations. But I caught it with the fedora and um, with the plaid suit. But that definitely is Jack Ryder, the Creeper, on there. So it's like, you talk about like connections kind of like lost, you know what I mean? Look at uh, Ted's uh, trainer. You can't tell me that's not Mer- Mer- uh, Burgess Meredith from Rocky as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that I picked up on right away. I love the uh, the sequence where they kind of give him like, it's doing the same thing as a smelling salt, but it's not really a smelling salt. It's that whatever that liquid is that, you know, wakes him up and then all the faces are distorted for a little while as he's trying to like get his bearings and everything. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Right, and they blur they blur the action the uh, the speed lines around him as he uh, kicks into Plan B as he refers to it. Right, and just all the sweat and you know water and and everything else on that black you know he's got that black eye. The look on the audience as he comes around and and turns the tide on the fight, and just that last panel where he actually right after the knockout punch where he's just kind of you can tell he's Darwin Cook just does an awesome job where you see all these gloves you know. 
flying up in the air, and, and you can tell that Grant is just like, that's it. Like, if, if this went any further, there, there'd be, there's no gas left in the tank. That, that was everything he had left. As much as I like the loser sequence, I think that this is probably one of my favorite, like, uh, sequences in the book, actually. The whole, even though it's not superheroes and stuff, I, I really like the fight here. Yeah, I love the way he puts, like Russ was talking about, he's just about to run out of gas and he just gets that one final punch. And the way he puts it, he's like, I once swam two miles with three bullets in my lungs. I KO'd the ultra humanite in one punch. I'm Ted friggin' Wildcat Grant. <laughs> These are my, this is my fight. These are my people. And tonight, for one last time, I am their champion. What a cool character, too, because uh, in the latest uh, Thy Kingdom Come arc, when Jakeem Thunder comes back into play, Ted is is going toe to toe with Judo Master in the JSA's gym, and it's it's another uh, you know another boxing match, and Ted can't seem to connect with Judo Master because of her powers and stuff. But uh, pretty cool nonetheless. I mean, this is just like the I don't want to say blue collar, but this is like the uh, the, the the man's man kind of tell it like it is straight shooter. The Ted Grant is such a cool character. In the DCU, he has this huge uh, role as being the guy who close combat trains pretty much everyone. I mean, I guess he trained Batman and Catwoman. Mm -hmm. There's that great, uh, I think it was in Starman where he's training Jack Knight out of box. Um, he's like he's like the close combat trainer for the DC, DCU. Takes out Vandal Savage. <laughs> but it's a great, you know, one of the things, unfortunately, one of the victims of the of the anime series was this fight sequence. One of the effects of the aftermath, well, during and the aftermath of the, of the fight scene, which I thought was really cool, is that it brings all these characters, it's kind of like this is this is where all these characters come together. So we're getting to see everybody in their non-superhero identity all in the same place, but not even really interacting with each other. It's like, you know, we're kind of like a fly on the wall, you know, buzzing around, you know, this this hotel the casino you have ace morgan and Hal here you've got iris you've got like we mentioned selena and lois and bruce and ollie and randall flag and you know i mean just all these characters in their civilian identities have all converged on this event you know basically the who's who of the dc universe is all right here and you know that continues also on the next sequence that we get with this is our first kind of you know meet up with uh, Barry Allen and and stuff. So you know you got Ace Morgan, you got Hal Jordan, you got Bruce Wayne, you, you got Oliver Queen, and who's talking about Alan Scott? And you've got Selena, and you got everybody on here, and especially Iris Allen. Barry's home in Central City, just kind of checking out the TV, talking about Jay, as in Jay Garrick. <laughs> Ted Grant comes in and whatnot, and then who ruins the party? Captain Cold, old Leonard Snart. Uh, busting through the door, and it's a typical straight uh, snatch-and-grab ro uh, robbery. Iris is on the phone. She tells this to Wally, and, or excuse me, she tells this to Barry. I'm getting my flashes confused. It's easy to do these days. And um, he bursts out. Uh, he's running at full speed, and Captain Cole tells him, hey, man, there's bombs everywhere around Las Vegas. So he darts out of the Utopia Theater. Barry runs around, saves the day at the very end with... A huge explosion over Las Vegas, and which it snows, and Captain Cold's brought to justice. This is another cool sequence. I'm going to, okay, <laughs> i got to quit saying that adjective because, I mean, it's all so tight, you know? And you're, and you're wondering, and John, you haven't uh, finished New Frontier yet, but, you know, can, can you see, like, any breadcrumbs about, like, how things may boil over later? I mean, obviously we have this character with the center. Uh, do you have any, like, thoughts or predictions about, like, how that's going to boil or come out? No, no, I really don't. I mean, I, I definitely, you know, it was brought to my attention when I read about the center, and, and you kind of feel that it's going to come back. But they, they have connected things, but they haven't. You know, you guys have done a good job of pointing out where they bring all these characters, like, to the same place, but they really haven't connected them in terms of any big event yet. Right. So that's pretty much where I'm at. I think that's one of the things where the, the animated feature does a little better is tying in that something bigger, you know, the whole thing with the center, it's a mm -hmm. lot more, they, they set it up a lot better. In, in the book, it's a lot more subtle as to, as to how this stuff is all connected. Well, actually, Russ, the page you're talking about is page 131 in the absolute. Barry and Captain Cold are both in the fountain, and Captain Cold's gun starts to go crazy. He calls it the icer. What happens here is, in the movie, um, Captain Cold, kind of like the cult leader, was kind of like taken over, like his body was taken over. 
and then cryptically the center is speaking through Captain Cold, which doesn't happen here here in the book. Captain Cold's gun just goes off and he gets frozen. Uh, this is the page I snagged with Captain Cold and Barry in the fountain. I thought it was really cool. Plus, it has a really cool color and inking effects too. I, I was really like jazzed to get a, a Captain Cold page, and I got a sketch from Darwin Cook at Baltimore on my jam piece of Captain Cold. So I kind of have like. I don't know. It was just really cool to have to get a sketch from him. You know, you know, the center m- makes his presence known to Barry, and I think the center's a really good Silver Age villain. And of course, Barry Allen, you know, aside from John Jones, who is the who is the best um, Silver Age hero too. So Barry, you know, John Jones has got the newspaper clippings and stuff, so he's kind of like on the trail. Batman's going to be on the trail soon, and in the in the movie, uh, you know, Barry's brought into the mess of. Uh, who the center is and whatnot as well. Designed from Grant Morrison, that, that's who Captain Cold is, in case you didn't know. it's uh, He's bald totally, and uh, Darwin used Grant Morrison as a template for Captain Cold. Probably, and I think it's a pretty cool redesign of the character, too. You know, I don't know how I'd feel about having a bomb around my neck, but, you know, that's just me. <laughs> Something I noticed at the beginning of the sequence when uh, Barry is at home eating Chinese food, uh, before he rushes off to, to fight Captain Cold, he's watching the Johnny Thunder show, and Johnny Thunder was a member of the original JSA, and the next show they're inter- they're introducing called Heroes, uh, the first person they, they, they said features not one but four of America's best and brightest, Red Ryan, the world's mm-hmm. greatest, and then it pages off, which is a reference to the challengers of the unknown, who are also uh, contemporary to this, you know, the Silver Age. Probably some of the best covers of comics come from Challengers of the Unknown. They're so crazy and bizarre. I love how when they show that in the Absolutist, page 117, but the right after Captain Cole comes in and he pulls back his hood and he's got, you know, diamond ring on every finger so that, you know, getting the whole ice. Like how his eyebrows are white, too. It's pretty cool. It's a lot different from the modern Leonard Snart because if you look at uh, what Scott Collins did with Rogue's Revenge, you know, Leonard, he's just, you know, he's still an Alki, but he's just all, like... He's just a mess. He's just a hot mess, unshaved. If, if you saw Flash Rebirth number one, he's got that red nose because uh, he's he's such a boozer that Alex Sinclair put in, which I thought was a cool touch too. I, I don't know. It's a pretty neat thing. You know, we'll see uh, Grodd later on, another Flash villain, but I think I think it's pretty cool. I mean. A different spin on the character, but you know, keeping true to the same. He just got remixed a little bit. I really like the double page spread where the uh, where the uh, panels bleed over from one page to the next to make three yeah. really big panels of the Flash running from Central City to Las Vegas. I think by widening the lens like that, as it were, or whatever, it really seems to like impart that feeling of speed along with the speed lines that he's using and the blurred effect and whatnot. Almost like you get like a sonic boom on that on the top, you know, panel right at the right at the fold. This uh, sequence at the, the Utopia is kind of uh, made infamous now, I, I get, I, in, in such a good way. Um, our buddy Paolo at uh, CadenceComicArt.com actually commissioned Darwin Cook at a convention to do a sketch of his wife, um, or excuse me, at the time his fiance. And what Paolo did was they used Darwin Cook's sketch for their wedding invitations and kind of like the New Frontier style of the you know of, of the 50s right now. So what they also did was when they put their wedding together, they modeled um, their wedding, you know, their favors, the uh, reception room and everything off of this sequence in this kind of like uh, in this kind of like retro-tastic style. So their whole wedding theme was kind of brought in from the sequence that Paolo liked so much. So I, I would say minus the lounge singer, the New Frontier sequence that you see right here, down to you know, de- down to detail of, you know, the martini glasses was uh, at our buddy Paolo's um, wedding, which I think is really really cool. I mean, I've heard of Star Trek weddings and stuff, but a New Frontier wedding—that's something altogether different. Yeah. yeah, that's a new one on me. New Frontier wedding. Pretty neat. Well, guys, um, any other thoughts before we wrap this episode up on New Frontier so far? I was just going to say, the, the, the scene in Vegas where he's running around finding all the bombs makes me think of that Justice League Unlimited, or the, actually Justice League, it was before it went Unlimited episode where the Joker takes over Vegas and then plants those bombs all over and then flashes up running, running around trying to defuse them. That's that reality show one that the Joker does. Yeah, yeah, great episode. Really neat choice of splash pages, too. I, I like when uh, Captain Cold gets frozen in the middle of a water fountain. Very, very cool. 
<laughs> kind of like Mr. Yeah. Freeze's wife. Well, I love the, the panel before he tells him about the bombs. And they did this in the, in the anime, too, where he's running up to him, and he kind of, you know, over three panels, he, he starts the word stop on panel one. He's pretty good distance away. And then by the time he finishes with the with the word stop, he's you know, he literally pulls that punch, you know, centimeters away from his face. I just, I just thought that was a cool... He's able to just go from that fast to, to stop control it that close. I like the page after the splash that Adam's talking about, too, that's divided into three panels, but is actually just one picture. It's kind of like the um, scene where the ship blew up in Watchmen. Kind of like um, only the moon was in different panels, you know? And the uh, squid yeah. monster washed up on shore. Same kind of technique there, only vertical instead of horizontal. Yeah. Good, good stuff. Yep. So uh, next time, go ahead and uh, tune us in in, a, in two weeks. Uh, we're going to do New Frontier Part 2. Uh, then we're going to be taking you guys um, from uh, Hal and Ace up to the Challengers of the Unknown and Beyond. Thanks for listening uh, this week. What do we have coming up next week, guys? Next week, Terminator. It is the Terminator next week. Come with us if you want to live. Um, so we'll be taking a look. <laughs> John, can you talk to us about the Terminator episode real quick? Because I don't want to get cut unaware what do we I, need to know? What are we going to talk about? Well, it, it's going to air before Terminator Salvation is out in theaters, so it's kind of like a Terminator retrospective. We're going to take a look at the three movies and maybe some of the other material and the TV show and get all buddy, everybody geared up for the uh, the big release of Salvation. So that's the plan for now. That should be pretty cool. Plus, you know, Alex Ross used to do those uh, Terminator comics um, right before he did Marvels. Yeah, I think Burning Earth was the arc with uh, Terminator or something like that. Yeah, and he had some real, like, uh, hater messages on um, the covers uh, to those, too, so we can look forward to that. A nice break from the comic stuff, you know, just like Brad and Frank uh, did the Star Trek episode that you guys can download this week. So, um, otherwise, uh, thanks for tuning in to New Frontier Part 1, guys. We'll see you back in two weeks for number two and Terminator Salvation and whatnot in the middle. I'm looking forward to that. I need to get up on my uh, Skynet. I'll look it up on Skynet. So uh, thanks for listening, guys. Be sure to check us out at LOD.com or HHW.com or Half Hour Wasted. Uh, legionofdudes.com so thanks very much uh, be sure to check out the site uh, we'll have some more lost audio blogs we'll probably do some more video game audio blogs check us out there uh, thanks to Comic Geek Speak for hosting us at thecomicforums.com come on on join the forum and have a good time with the rest of us uh, throughout your week when you're bored at work or at lunch we'll talk to you guys later thanks a lot good night have a good night good night good night, good night.